truthfully, none of us are ever alone. We are married to our past. Like our shadow, our past follow us throughout our life. Unless we confront our past, we bring it into every relationship. Relationships involve more than just two people. They also involve our past hurts. We meet on dates. Our trauma meets our relationships. Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. Today, we have a special episode featuring two people, a lion-hearted couple named Kevin and Tashana McNeil, who share the very hard truth that you cannot outrun trauma. As they write so perfectly in their new book, We Meet on Dates, Our Trauma Meets in Relationships. We dive into that big topic and how we need each other to heal. We also discuss the often ignored crisis, which is that first responders, such as Kevin, who was a special victims detective, and Tashana, who is an emergency pediatric nurse, carry so much vicarious trauma and are woefully undersupported. The helpers need help, too. The good news is that there is hope yet, and it can be found in their new book called Sound the Alarm and in Knowing That We Heal in Community. This episode delves into a lot of difficult topics, including child sexual abuse, so please listen with discretion and take care of yourselves. Resources are, as always, in the show notes, and please know that you are never alone. Kevin and Tashana McNeil, thank you so much for joining us today on the Lionhearted Podcast. And where are you joining us from? Good, thank you, Andrea. I'm Kevin and I'm Tashana. Yeah, we're joining you from Atlanta, Georgia. You're actually the first episode that we have had with two people. And I think it will be very clear to our listeners soon enough why I've asked both of you to come on. So thank you again. Kevin, just to jump in, we've known each other for a few years now. I have known you as a tireless child advocate. And Tashana, I don't know you very well, but I've been so fortunate to read about your personal story and how you met Kevin in your new book, which is out now called Sound the Alarm. We will be sure to talk about that book later on in the episode. But while reading the book, I thought, wait, we have to have them both on to tell your personal stories and also to talk about your relationship, which is a beautiful love story. Without further ado, Kevin, can you explain your background, your career, and how you became a child advocate? Yeah, thank you, Andrea, for having us once again. I'm a Southern boy. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up, never knew my father. I was a third child of my mother. She was 19 years old. She didn't know what to do with me, so she gave me to my grandfather. So right off the bat, you know, I had issues with you know, why am I the only child who's not living with my mom? My grandfather died at the age of eight, moved back in with my mom. And when I moved back in, it was like I was in a foster care home because I knew no, I didn't know my brothers and sisters, although I knew they were my brothers and sisters, but it was like walking into a foster care home because the world I knew no longer existed. And for the first time, I saw abuse. I saw this guy who lived with my mother, who later became my stepfather, uh, physically abusing her. 
you know, emotional abuse with her. And as a young child of eight, oh, I didn't know what to do. It was a very scary time. And so I grew up in that abusive atmosphere, always carrying that abuse with me. And I thought it was normal. You know, no one said anything about it. No one talked about it. You know, in the neighborhood church we went to i just thought it was it was normal and then you know i was bullied a lot because my mom has five kids and we got up against it and also time she didn't work all the time and so i had to kind of care for myself you know i dressed myself i didn't know proper hygiene no one taught me and so sometimes i went to school with an older my my never saw a dentist so my teeth was not uh, looking the best so i i was always bullied uh, me and my brothers and all of them were all bullied, but I, do, I was the only one who stayed in school. They dropped out because they just didn't like the bullying. So I was very angry as a young man, very angry. And so I got with a friend one day. You know, my mom allowed me to go to a friend's house after school and lift weights because we come up with weights. And we lift weights, you know, I was, I was happy at that point. That was a happy point in my life where I had one friend who liked the same thing that I liked. And so... Well, one day while leaving his house, or it was getting dark, and my mom always told me to get home before it got dark. So I panicked and I, I cut behind a high school. I took a shortcut, and a man saw me, and he came out of nowhere. He came out of a stadium, a high school in Boston. And when he saw me, I was startled by him. But he he said something. You looked up, this man knew me. He said that he had stolen some rings out of the high school jail. You know that got my attention, and he asked me if you would come with me. I'll give you some. But when I followed him down the stairs to those set of bleachers in that dark stadium, something just told me so it wasn't right. And so when he told me to look up under the bleachers and I didn't see the waist, I knew I was in trouble. But it was too late. He grabbed me. I grabbed me, dragged me underneath those bleachers. He began to beat. I didn't know what he wanted. You know, I could, you know, I don't have any good clothes. And I thought it was a robbery of him. So I'm begging him, you know, just to let me go. I don't have anything. And then, you know, he did that. I'm thinking, you know, he raped and he made me do some awful things. I've never even thought a human would even do for another human, let alone a child. And he made me do some things that to this day, I still have flashbacks about it. And yeah. then he got on top of me, not, you know, to, to add insult to injury. He started choking me, trying to kill me. I didn't know he was going to kill me. And I started to fight him off. Started to fight him off. And then he told me to get back up. And he tried again to rape me. But, you know, um, he told me this time, take your pants all the way off. I wear them all the way off. So I pretended I was going to take my pants off. And he went to take his off. When I saw him pull his pants down, that was my opportunity to run. So I pulled my pants up quickly. And ran. He pulled his pants up and fell. I ran across the truck ball stadium and ran as fast as I could. And the only thing I could see was headlights and the highway. I didn't care about got hit by a car or not. I just ran towards the highway. Oh, people moved out the way they blew their horn, but nobody stopped. And I got to the other side of the street and I could see him like disappear in the darkness. And then I began to walk home because I didn't know what to say when I got home. You know, that, that was the longest trip of my, my life. I knew I was past curfew, but I had no shirt, no shoes. So when I got there, I think my mom was just happy to see, but she thought I was purposely miscurping. So she had a bell in her head. She was going to whoop me. But when she saw the condition I was in, she was just, I saw the, I saw the shock on her face. I just saw the pain on her face. She wanted to call the police and I didn't want her to call the police. So I told her to call the police. She didn't. 
And so I went through my life, you know, hiding that secret. I changed it a lot. No one knew it. I went to high school. Proud to the incident. People broke me. I just put my head down and took it. To that situation, I started fighting. My grades slipped. But they called me a bad kid. You know, I was expressing the anger and the pain that I felt from that incident. And uh, the thing that saved me was, was team sports. No, all right. Began to play team sports, football. It gave me an opportunity to hide. You know, that night, he took, he took from me, you know, not just my innocence. He took, I mean, he took my life at that point because I became a shell of a person. And I began to hide a new thing. Football became the beginning of me hiding. I joined the military after that. I did, I became a police officer after that to protect them. And so all my life, I've been hiding behind that incident and trying to cope. All my life, that's all I've known is abuse and, and pain and things of that nature. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I feel so honored to have heard that. And I know our listeners feel the same way. If it's okay with you, I'm going to go back and ask you some questions. First of all, it's so unfortunate that when little kids are suffering because they're not getting enough food or whatever it is, and they show up at school not looking their best, that they get bullied for that. It's just so yeah. backwards, right? You would think that's the child that needs help and love and attention. And it's interesting to me, though, that you said that your siblings didn't stay in school and you were the only one that stayed in school. Yeah, I was the only one. And I just became a role model for my younger sister who stayed and graduated. I think that's really worth celebrating, that you had that internal wisdom or resilience to stick with yeah. it. And then you said that the longest trip of your life was getting yeah. home, and then you didn't know what to say. Because who has the language for that? Yeah, then being a little boy at 12 years old, you know, what do you say? And to be honest with you, I didn't know what just happened because you got to remember, I'd never had sex. I was a virgin. So to be forced to do some of those things that I saw, what I was forced to do was incomprehensible. I didn't even know what I was doing. And it was forced upon. So I fought and I didn't want to be found underneath those breaches. Did. And so I fought to get back home. You know, I didn't even fight to live. I fought not letting my mom down. Yes, that makes absolute sense. When you imagine being a 12-year-old boy, this is how 12-year-old children think. They're thinking yeah. about protecting the one person they love more than anything. And also, I think it's important to highlight that there's no language to explain what happened to you, certainly as, no. a, as a 12-year-old, because you couldn't even imagine that someone would do that to another human being. And so how, how could you possibly explain that? It, I, I just yeah. bring it up because I think it's important to highlight all the reasons why children don't immediately tell. Some never tell. It took me 30 years, 30 plus years to tell. After this happened to you, you said you changed a lot and that yeah. you started acting out and you were seen as a bad kid, right? Yeah. For parents who are listening, when it starts to seem like someone is being a bad kid, it's time to ask what happened to you, yeah. not what's wrong with you. Why are you a bad kid? There is a yeah. reason for that change. Yeah. It's so interesting that you said, I think team sports saved my life. 
And I know we're going to get into your story, Tashana, in a bit, but something else that stood out to me was you said nursing school saved my life. And I remember thinking, yeah, because it's purpose and connection and structure. And that's exactly the same for team sports, Kevin. And you went on to be more poetic to say that you'd hid in uniform starting from the team sports and forward. I'm so grateful. I have chills that 12-year-old boy had team sports and that you had the wisdom to seek that out and the ability to play. Yeah, it was amazing to to be accepted. And then you went on to the military. Yes. And then what happened? The military treated me good. You know, they sent me to Hawaii for the first four years. But after that, yeah, (laughs) we still placed our force to a Georgia. And then I began to go to Kuwait. And that's when I knew, hey, it's time to get out of here. I didn't know what to do with my life. You know, and a friend went to a job fair in Atlanta and came back and said, how man, a police officer, really looking for police officer. And I was like, hey, you know, it's another uniform. So I thought it was an easy transition. So I became a police officer. For eight years, you know, eight years while I'm dead, one morning I almost lost my life. I got another one call of a homicide uh, in a robbery. And I just so happened to be the cop in the area and got behind the deal. Got to his high speed chase. The guys jumped out of car with AK 47s and attempted to shoot me, but they all fell down. The guns jammed. I got into a store where one guy ended up shooting him. For me, I was going to quit at that point. I was done with police. But a friend suggested that I go into the tech. Uh, now, the agency that I work for, you don't get to choose where you go. They put you where they need you. So they put me at the special victims unit. And I never heard of this recipe. I didn't even know what they do, you know. So I wanted to get off the street. I said, okay, I do it. And I accepted it. And boy, little did I know that we're opening the door. The doors are swing wide open for my healing process. Let me just jump in here for a second. What were you like at that time? What was your mental state? Oh, man, I was, I was a mess. I was cope, destructive. I didn't know it at the time. You know, people used to ask me, what what was your greatest fear of being a police officer? You know, I used to tell them, you know, I used to lie at first and say, well, you know, I'm being shot at. But the truth was, it was me going home at the end of the night and looking at the mirror and seeing that guy stare about me. I didn't like who I was. And I used to drink myself to sleep. And I was having these suicidal thoughts. And I used to sleep with my gun next to my bed. And it scared me one day because one night I woke up and I had my gun in my hand, my hand on the trigger. And I was just thinking about suicide. And I thought about my mom. I said, I can't do that. I can't do that to her. I was jerking excessively. I became addicted to sex, pornography. So all these things, you know, and then on top of those things, self-judgment, what one of those things, you know, I was functioning, going to work every day. But on my off days, when I got out of work, that's what I had to do. I to, to either survive the trauma that I had gone through and to appear somewhat okay. So that was a normal for me. So I was a sick person, didn't even know it. I was in pain. It seems like you were doing your best to survive with the tools that you knew of at that time. And then what happened when you became a special victims detective? Oh, man, I became a special victims detective. And my first case was involving a nine-year-old little boy. And I thought that was interesting, right? And so... I sat down. I didn't know how I was going to feel. So they had an observation room with detectives and other members of the multidisciplinary team actually observing it. They watched the forensic interview. And I could see the little boy walking into the child center. 
is he worth lowering or he's sold with something? And I could tell he just did not want to do this. <laughs> and, but I watched this multidisciplinary team, started from the greeter, how they treated the parents, just how nice they were to them in the atmosphere itself was different than posed from. And I saw this was again and you know, take her time with this. She didn't sit in front of them in a very confrontational way. All the things that I've been trying to do, they did different. They treated the victim, they gave the victim control and power over that story. Allowed them to see what they were to sit. Ask them about who they were versus what happened to them. That just blew me up, right? You know, and then the little boy told me the story. And then I watched him come out of the room different than he went in. Man, that little boy came out of there with his head high, his chest stuck out, he was skipping and jumping. I was like, oh my God. This little boy just brought back to life. And at that moment, I knew he was going to be okay. But there was a little boy I knew wasn't going to be okay if he didn't get to that one. That's when I decided. You know what? That little boy can tell his story. That little nine-year-old boy can be as brave as he can. If I can see the result that he can, I said, I can get help too. Isn't it incredible how kids can be so inspiring? They can be so brave to do things that terrify adults. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You couldn't say it better than you did, which is that this nine-year-old little boy saved your life. So then you went to therapy. I'm guessing that was definitely the first time you had ever gone to therapy. That was the first time I ever even considered therapy. And, okay. And I never forget the first time I went. It was with a male, interestingly enough. And I never forget he put a mirror in front of me and told me to say something good about that guy you said. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I broke out of South Brian because I couldn't even say one good popular thing about him. And that was just, that was like a wake up call. Cause I thought I was okay. I thought I had put that behind me. I was living a life, a decent career. I slipped out home. You know, I thought I was going well. So you were a special victims detective for how many years until you retired? I was a special victims detective for twelve years. Instead of team, they gave me an alternative. They told me they needed me to stay in the office because I was doing happy shoot work and being a detective. So when instead of team, I gave them the gun and bad. So you know what? I put people in jail long enough. Now I want to allow people to come out personal prison. It's like I was unlocked in my prison. So I signed up the 12 Project. The 12 Project has so many metaphorical meanings. I was 12 when I was getting out the rape. Uh, 12 jurors, so getting justice. And also, you know, when I read the Bible, there was a text, scripture in the Bible in Matthew, I think it's 10, 1 or 2, that said Jesus called the 12 disciples and he gave them power to heal abusive spirits. And that just connected, you know, so that became my, my mantra and my vision is to go out into the world and heal a people from education. Kevin, you really are a living example of someone who took enormous adversity and turned it into your greatest asset and your superpower. And this theme is in your book as well. This idea that trauma wants to isolate us. It's so dangerous because we don't heal by ourselves. We heal in community. And community, yeah. And so on that note, let's bring Tashana in. Tashana, can you walk us through in as much detail as you feel comfortable your journey from sure. being a little child all the way to sitting where you are now? Sure. I grew up very close to the Michigan-Indiana state line. Um, grew up in a very rural area, um, single parent home, lived with my mother and my sister. Mom worked at the post office every day. So my sister and I kind of 
watched ourselves and did what we needed to do to, you know, get to school on time, et cetera, and take care of house, cook, everything. She worked nights, so a lot of times we were home alone. I looked forward to going to school. I was pretty popular in junior high. I had to change school districts. It was a lot different. Um, So I was 15 um, as a freshman, and at the end of my freshman year, um, I had gone over to a friend's house who I know very well. I was dating one of her cousins and actually date raped me. I remember just being numb, and after I left, my cousin's house was maybe a block away if that, so... I walked back to my cousin's house, which is where I was staying at the time, um, and just didn't know what to do. Again, numb. I'm 15. I was a virgin. That was the first sexual experience I had ever had and did not know what to do. And so I did basically nothing. I just kind of dismissed it like it never happened. When I went back home, I didn't tell my mom. I believe I showered. Like I said, I just was in a daze. Don't really remember fully how I left that encounter, went to the cousin's house, went to my house, and then proceeded with life like it never even happened. He, at the time, let's see, so he was four years my senior, so he, I believe, had dropped out of school maybe by that time. Um, But I still went to school with his cousins, and it's a very small town, so it's not like everybody doesn't know everything that goes on because people talk. I had a very good friend of mine and her and I actually reconnected and she said, I tried my hardest to try to protect you. And he had said something to her like, if you say anything to anybody, they're not going to believe you because he was very popular, come from a large family. Everybody knows each other. So she said, I tried to stand up for you, but he shut me down and I didn't know what to do. I mean, we're 15 what do you do? Um, similar to Kevin, um, when you come home and you're like, what am I supposed to tell my parents? What do I tell my friends, my, my family? This happened to me and I don't even have the words to explain it. And how am I going to be perceived? So like I said, I just tried to dismiss it. Different from Kevin, my grades did not change. I think I still maintained straight A's throughout my whole high school career. I had found poetry in junior high, and I revisited that, and that was a way for me to express without expressing some of the things that I didn't know how to deal with. I could put it onto paper, but I may not be able to speak it. So poetry was an outlet for me. I found a positive coping mechanism, but at the same time, I also participated in some negative coping mechanisms. My sister is five years older than me. We look alike. I would borrow her ID, get into parties. I would hang out with a lot of people older than me, drinking. And then I became actually more sexually active as a result of that. I felt if I had the power to say, when I wanted to have sex, don't want to have sex, I'm doing something for me. And so I became very sexually active. The person that date raped me, we still dated off and on. He was verbally Somewhat verbally abusive in the household that he came from. His father was physically and verbally abusive towards his mother and him. So we had gotten into a physical altercation, and that was the only time that he ever tried to hit me. I tried to knock him out. (laughs) I'm four foot ten and a half, four foot eleven. He's probably about six foot, but I wasn't having that. So, like I said, we dated off and on, finally broke up with him. I was a sophomore then. My sister, like I said, was older than me. The, The person that my sister was dating. His best friend kind of took a liking to me and we started dating. So he's five years older than me and we dated for about 
year and a half, almost two years, I ended up getting pregnant and being in high school. Don't know what to do, but I'm trying to be responsible in my irresponsibility, if that makes sense. So the only thing I know to do is, again, hide. And we decide to have an abortion. And at that time, you could go to Illinois without a parent to have an abortion. So you make the best of the situations that are presented to you. So I didn't have a lot of money, didn't want my mother to know. So ironically, the person that date raped me, we still had a somewhat relationship because, again, it's a small town and we hang around the same people. He actually gave me the money to have an abortion, which sounds preposterous. <laughs> it sounds totally just what? <laughs> but anywho, had the abortion. Again, the way that I dealt with things is to not deal with them. So hit that fact from, from family. And I don't remember the drive up, don't remember the drive back, didn't have enough money to have <clears throat> anesthesia. So what I thought they were just going to give me a local, but they knew enough that this child needs to have anesthesia. So they took pity on me, excuse me, allowed me to have the anesthesia without paying the money for it. I don't really remember the drive home. Like I said, that's about a two, two and a half hour drive back. Again, put it on the back burner. That was my junior year in high school. I was very active into showing horses. And I think that was probably the last year that I showed horses. Mm -hmm. So senior year comes, um, we break up and I'm kind of talking with the guy that date raped me and found out that he is on again, off again with the mother if he has two children by her. And so that just sends me spiraling. I take, I don't know how many pills of Tylenol and ibuprofen. I chase it with, if I recall, maybe a little alcohol. And I don't know that I wrote a note. Um, at this time, I'm living with my cousin. Um, my mother and I had had an altercation. She kicked me out of the house. And I remember laying on the bed and I get a knife and I start to split my wrist. I must have blacked out. I don't remember it, but I woke up at the hospital and they're trying to pump my stomach to get the pills out of my system. So in order to be released, I have to agree to therapy. And at that time, I am 18. I'm doing it just to get out. I'm not doing it because I want to tell somebody about everything that's transpired because, again, I still don't know how to talk about it. Right. So I agree to it. I go to a couple sessions and I'm not talking. So it's not working. I'm not opening up. And so, again, I'm only doing it to get out of that situation. I, I, I needed to do it just for the meantime. I graduate fifth in my class. However, not having a lot of money. I don't get a lot of scholarships and grants, which is beyond me, but um, my aunt takes me to school. I was accepted at Michigan State University, so I am going to major in veterinary science, and I'm a freshman at college, about three hours away from home. I don't know anybody there, and not once did I attend a party, I did what I had to. I got a part-time job and I'm working and it's just economically impossible. Mm -hmm. I decided to come back home and I moved back in with my mother. I'm still taking classes except at a local college. And in order to gain credits for class, they placed me at a veterinary clinic since that is my major. And it's in Indiana. And so I meet a guy that I'm very interested in. We hit it off. 
And after maybe six months of meeting him, I move in with he and his family. We eventually get married. We have a child. But the baggage that you don't deal with and the trauma that you don't deal with goes along with you into your relationships, whether it be personal, professional, etc. I've not had a role model for what marriage is supposed to look like. I come from a single household. A lot of my relatives are either divorced, date, or just have never been married. So again, that's not models. We have a child, the child gets sick, and at eight and a half months, he dies. And so again, not quite knowing how to tell people, I need help. I'm grieving. I don't know what to do. Um, Take your time, Tashana. We can take a break if you'd like. I become very bitter, very angry. My husband at the time had two other children, and I was just very angry and bitter, and I was a different person. I was downright nasty. And eventually, we got divorced, but I did not see that coming. I thought we were okay. Our son died in 2001, and I want to say it was maybe 2004, 2005. I'd been working at the vet clinic. I decided to go back to school, and I was going to go into the human side of medicine. I'm working full-time. I'm taking classes. I'm doing what I think I should be doing, which is what I've known to do all my life. Even though you go through things, you have to keep pushing. And so, like I said, I did not see the divorce coming. I'm in my prerequisite state, I'm taking finals, and I find out that my husband has been having an affair and he was planning to leave me. I find this out during exams. I almost quit. I talked to an advisor. She's saying, don't give him that power. You keep going. You do this for you. You do this for you. I pushed through. I got divorced. I graduated with my associates of nursing. And that is when I find out just how important your support system really Mm. is. Um, If you have people in your corner that may not know what to say or to do, but say, I'm here, Mm -hmm. whatever you need, if I can do it, just say the word. Sister, my cousins, my mom, my aunts, uncles, very supportive. And to this day, nursing school saved my life. I was clinically depressed at the time before we divorced, we were separated. I would literally get up. I would go to school or clinicals. I would come home, shut myself in the bedroom, barely eating. I had homework to do. And that was my driving force. That was my focus. If I can get through this, then maybe I can breathe. Then maybe I'll learn to live again. I'll be divorced at that time, but Nursing school truly saved my life. It gave me something to focus on. I was determined and it was structured, which is what I needed. I had lost control, air quotes, and I'm spinning and I'm spiraling and I'm a type A person. (laughs) I have to have control. My husband's nodding. (laughs) My husband is over here nodding. Yes, I managed to stay in school. I graduated with my associates. I decide to go back for my bachelor's of science and nursing. So I have my bachelor's and ironically, the area of nursing that I go into is pediatrics. Mm. I do not have children. My only child died. I go into pediatrics and people are like, 
how do you do that? But it's the the want to give back, the want to, for whatever time those children are in my care, to provide the best care that I possibly can, not knowing that I'm being a child advocate. <laughs> One night, a coworker and I are talking and she comes from a long line of police officers and we strike up conversation on forensic nursing, which I had no idea what it was. And she opened up a whole new world to me in one conversation. And I said, okay, I go home and I'm starting to look information up on what forensic nursing is. And we talk about sane nursing, sexual assault nurse examiners. And I come back a couple of weeks later and say, hey, if I were to find a training, would you be interested in going? Fast forward, Georgia <laughs> is the closest state for pediatric same training. And so we go down to Georgia and we are enrolled in this pediatric same training program. And in walks a detective who is speaking to a group of SANE nurses. And that is how I met my husband, Kevin. <laughs> he was the speaker. Yeah. Just taking notes. Yeah. I clearly noted that there was no ring on his finger. <laughs> and um... <laughs> yeah. that's funny that you know, that was one of the first times I told my story. So she was hearing my story wrong. Like right off the press. That was interesting. She emailed me and said that she she had questions. And I did have questions. Okay, but wait. <laughs> You glossed over this quickly, Tashana, that you noticed his ring finger had no ring on it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. <laughs> Already you've demonstrated you're a smart lady with your accomplishments <laughs> up to this point, but clearly you're very observant. Kevin hadn't even opened his mouth, but yet his spirit had spoke to me long before he even said a word. I was just like, I've been looking for you like my whole life. He's right in front of me. He's here. This is the person that I've been looking for my whole life without even knowing his story. And then once he shared his story, we just had so much in common. And then you reached out to him. And how did he receive that? Uh, he had a, a slide up on his PowerPoint presentation that has contact information. In order to complete my training for becoming a SANE nurse, I had to log so many hours, whether it was shadowing, doing exams, collecting evidence. And so I reached out to him yes. asking questions like, what's a good way that sane nurses can try to bridge that gap and have a good relationship with law enforcement? What have you encountered? What would you advise? I'm new to this arena. Can you give me some pointers and some tips? She'll tell you how I was in the beginning. I was very stepped out this. Didn't want a relationship. I don't want to date anybody. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not open to it. I don't even want to entertain it. So it's interesting that I feel like God will bring two people together without you to protect you. Right? So uh, that, that story within itself is amazing. I think there is a beautiful irony there. You actually do take care of so many children. You yeah. save children together. I mean, Tashana, you were saying as a nurse, while they're in your care, they're your children. Yes. yes. Yeah. Exactly right. Yes, ma'am. Oh, it's very touching. And then, Kevin, sounds like you were trying to take care of yourself and your boundaries. And you had been through things with your past relationship and you were not ready for another relationship. Yeah, I think one of the things people don't realize when it comes to abuse victims is one of the things they lose trust in is in relationships. And mm -hmm. I talk about this in the book too. I talk about 
you know, relationships is how you grow. You know, nothing in, in, in society grows without relationships made to people, right? One of the things that happens when trauma gets to a person from abuse is isolates them or makes them feel like they're isolating, like there's no one there for them. How did you get close in the beginning? So I was living in Indiana at the time, and he's in Georgia, and we just had very open conversations over the phone. I would come down like almost every, what, two or three months to visit. Mm -hmm. It was those true, honest, raw, open conversations over the phone, and that was an agreement that we made that we would be open and honest about anything and everything, even if it was something that we felt may hurt the other person, that we created a safe enough space between the two of us that it was okay to share that in that safe space. And that's how we wanted our relationship to start out with being able to tell each other anything and everything. And telling your story doesn't mean you tell anyone and everyone. It's knowing who are your safe and trusted people to do so with, right? And that's a learning process as well. Kevin, I want you to read that beautiful passage from your book. Oh, yes. This comes from page 51 of my book, Sound the Alarm. And it says, truthfully, none of us are ever alone. We are married to our past. Like our shadow, our past follow us throughout our life. Unless we confront our past, we bring it into every relationship. Relationships involve more than just two people. They also involve our past hurts. We meet on dates. Our trauma meets the relationships. No truer words have been spoken, right? And you two are such an incredible example of confronting that trauma, being lionhearted, brave enough to begin the healing journey, and to create something bigger, which is the two of you and all the incredible work that you have done and continue to do. Tashana, you said that conversation with your nursing coworker changed your life. Yes. I always say to people, one conversation can change your life. And that's what's so hopeful to me about humanity is that one conversation can open the door wide open and your entire life trajectory is different and and better. Um, so that's a wonderful uh, example of that. So let's see, going back to you two meeting, you had lots of honest conversations, you said, and then you got together. So now, how many years have you been married? We've been married five years this year. September made our fifth anniversary. Yeah, five years. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Tashana, are you still working as a nurse? I am. I am still a pediatric nurse, and I now work in urgent care of all things. So again, they're sick. We're that first line of defense, if that's what you want to say. We're basically the first responder for them. We may be able to treat their immediate need if it's more than what we can handle as an urgent care, then yes, we will refer them to an emergency room. But basically, we're that first responder for the for the pediatric population. You have taken everything you have gone through in your life from what happened to you at 15 to then losing your child 
And then you are now the face that greets grieving and panicked families, and you take care of their most precious thing. I'm so grateful that you exist in that role. This is a good segue to talking about the book. And Kevin, you have always been a child advocate. Now I feel like you have another role, which is you are now an advocate for first responders. Yeah, I think sometimes first responders get lost in the mix. I think a lot of times we see a lot of the worst. You know, people watch the news and say, oh, the world is bad, but they see it small segments where we see really the whole picture. We don't see as a child, you know, getting touched in a problem. We see a whole family disintegrate, you know, because of this one act of another person. And so a lot of times we try to be compartmentalize our lives and come home and act like they have them bother us. And sometimes we get involved in destructive coping mechanisms, as I did trying to deal with that type of trauma, or we ignore it all together. And so I wanted to write a book for those who are first responders, but no, no matter where I travel, I get the same thing. That supervision don't understand that we need help. I'm burnt out, mentally, you know, I don't know what to do. How do you do? You know, I get all these questions all the time. How do you stay sane? And so even our families, I think those are part of people that get left out too, you know, and me and my wife both, our first responders. So that isn't, you know, that honesty helps. But what happens when you're married to a first responder and they come home and have to just de-escalate? They have to just turn like, need a minute. But if your spouse doesn't understand that, then things can get a little rough at home. Because we broke this book to help not only first responders, but the families understand how important this job is and that the first responder and their families are in this together. So I didn't want to leave them out. And just like Kevin stated, having careers as first responders, we see it, we see you, we hear you, and we want you to know that you too are a someone. Mm-hmm. You need also to give yourself the same grace and compassion that you do for so many others. Don't leave yourself out because at the end of the day, you matter. And we want you to take care of yourself. You have to be your biggest advocate. Take care of you first. So that you then can take care of somebody else. And I just want to add that I think people who go into this profession often have experienced a lot of trauma themselves, right? That's what makes them especially gifted as Mm -hmm. helpers because they have an incredible sensitivity and empathy that they can offer victims, but that doesn't make them, you know, very skilled at taking care of themselves necessarily. So this is a great wake-up call for them. And on that note, I would like to conclude our conversation by asking if there's anything you would like to say. <laughs> I would say, just like you said, Angela, to get the book, we wrote the book with first responders in mind, but we also wrote the book for family members, also of first responders, mm-hmm. of people who know first responders. Because change happens when we're willing to invest in ourselves. And it's okay to to have things happen to you in the past and to, on your own terms, talk about it, but it needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, it will certainly deal with you in ways that you don't want. <laughs> right. So right. in your own timing, 
Mm-hmm. Please seek out some of these resources to deal with things that may have happened to you in the past that you may be going through now. And it's okay. There's nothing to be ashamed about. Don't feel guilty. We're all human and mm-hmm. There's more support out there than what you realize. And that's what we want to show. Thank you both so, so much. What an incredible honor to have heard both of your stories. Thank you for entrusting me and our listeners with your story. I think this conversation and the book you wrote together is going to change lives. So we are indebted. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. As Tashana just said, we are all human and there's more support out there than what you realize. What incredible human beings to put their trauma and stories of survival on display in service of teaching compassion, connecting survivors, and exemplifying hope that you can absolutely heal and transform your life. There is no couple more purpose-driven than Kevin and Tashana in their quest to protect all children from harm. And as master students of the human condition, they know that helpers are only as good as the help and healing they receive. Cue the oxygen mask reference. If there's one word to sum up what I take away from Kevin and Tashana's episode and their ongoing advocacy work, it's compassion. Compassion is needed towards ourselves especially in the face of traumatic events that unravel you and make you act in ways you may not be proud of or yet understand, and compassion for first responders who take into their hearts, minds, and bodies every single day the horrible things people do to each other. It's incomprehensible to most people, but with compassionate curiosity, I believe we will be closer to getting our helpers the help they need and deserve. Sound the Alarm is available on the12project.com and on Amazon. To learn more, go to the12project.com with the number 12 spelled out, and links will be provided in the show notes. The Lionhearted is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing, and of course to our guests, Kevin and Tashana McNeil. Follow us at the Lionhearted Podcast on all socials and subscribe to this podcast for all future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend who can relate. Lastly, I want to leave you with a question. Who in your world is Lionhearted? Let us know at the Lionhearted Podcast at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening.